Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, October 11th. And you're listening to Inquiring Minds. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. And you can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and we're also on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Today we have a really special guest, especially this week. Uh, Randy Sheckman has won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work on vesicular trafficking, um, so how cells get proteins out of themselves. <laughs> and uh, he's done this research for many, many years. Almost his entire career has been spent at public universities, um, which will be relevant when we get to the interview. He's a really nice guy. It was a great interview, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's hear a little clip from that to get people interested, get people ready for it. I came from a middle-class family. There was no prospect, five kids, no prospect of any of us going to a private university. Never occurred to me to think about a place like Stanford or Caltech. But there was UCLA. It was a great school. It uh, offered everything that I could possibly want at $40 uh, in fees a term, $400 a, a term for room and board, and I could work a summer job and pay myself for the, for the whole school year. Indeed, my father never had to pay uh, virtually anything to educate his kids. And that, that simply isn't possible now. And it's, uh, it's just tragic. So, Indre, listening to that clip, it really raises for me the question of whether a kid from a poor family today who had, let's say, super scientific talent on the level of Randy Sheckman could that kid get to the same place today? Could that kid win a Nobel or would the higher education system be so against him? You know, I think for a lot of kids, it would be extremely difficult. I think there will be outliers, of course. Um, you know, there are certain kids that would be picked up and, and found and, and somehow supported. But I think the bigger issue is that for a lot of people who are middle class, who aren't necessarily so poor, but they don't qualify for a lot of the help available, so that those are the people who can't afford it um, and who have no other option. So, you know, I think it's a real problem. And I and I'm I was delighted to hear that this is something this is something that he's passionate about and, um, you know, willing to spend some time advocating for. Definitely. So we'll look forward to, to the interview. Uh, we did something interesting this week. We both went to the movies. We did. I went to see Gravity in uh, 3D on the IMAX. Did you see it on the IMAX, Chris? I saw it in 3D, not IMAX. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, it was a it was an experience. My my stomach was like in my shoe uh, through much of it. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a visceral experience for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and one of the things that I, I found really fascinating about the movie is that it really does portray gravity, which is perhaps arguably the most mysterious of the four forces of nature. Um, you know, I say that because we still don't really understand how it can operate at these massive levels, right, where it keeps, you know, our Earth in orbit around the sun and, it, you know, keeps keeps our, our galaxies the way they are. And yet um, on Earth, we can defy gravity fairly simply by just taking a tiny magnet, um, which can pick up a bunch of paper clips that are, you know, being pulled to the center of the earth with the force of, you know, this massive planet. Uh, so, you know, and even more spooky is the way that gravity might behave, um, you know, in, 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 in particle physics with, with subatomic particles. So we don't understand it, even though it's this, it's this massive influence in our lives every day. And this movie is going to help a lot of people think about it. And it's just, we wanted to talk about it because it's just drawing so much attention to science. I mean, it, it's only been out a week and it's already grossed 100 million worldwide. And it also centers on what I understand to be a very realistic problem, which is we're not going to spoil the movie for anybody, but um, we're just going to talk broadly about some of the things without giving away the plot. It centers on the problem of junk floating around in space, which is apparently uh, quite a real problem. And there's a Wired magazine story that I read uh, going back a couple of years that talks about this, that looks like the, you know, might, the movie might be even partly based directly on the Wired magazine story. There's all this junk floating around up there. And if something collides, it's colliding at an incredibly high speed. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the same problem that we have in the oceans where we have a lot of plastic and junk in the oceans. This is a, this is something that um, our overpopulation you could argue is, is causing. And certainly I, you know, I, I feel it's particularly relevant for us since we launched our podcast with an interview with an astronaut. And one of the things I really liked about the movie is how realistic it seems that they portrayed um, both the international space station and, you know, the shuttle and so forth. Um, it looked to me like a mass of wires and, and tangles and tiny spaces and things floating around, which is how I imagine uh, it really is up up there. And yet in a lot of portrayals of space travel, you have these very sleek, you know, modern designed um, things that, that look very pretty, but um, maybe just aren't as accurate. No, it's kind of the movie gives you a kind of best stuff in space tour. I mean, you actually go see all of the coolest things we have up there in the context of a thriller. And yet, uh, there are a lot of people in science or in science commentary who are pointing out that it isn't entirely accurate. Neil Tyson had a series of highly retweeted tweets about the, quote, mysteries of gravity, where he explained things that were wrong, including the fact that Sandra Bullock's hair was not like, was not a f floating the way it should have been. <laughs> like everything <laughs> yeah. else is floating, but her hair is not. Oops. Yeah. I mean, so, actually, that's one thing yeah. I, my husband and I were talking about after the film is, you know, how do they get her to be in zero G? Because obviously we don't have zero G on Earth. Um, and uh, and so, you know, given that they have to portray zero gravity on the Earth, you know, how would they have accomplished that kind of you know, hair floating around and stuff, uh, you know, they probably thought about it and it probably just became too difficult. But it raises the issue. Yeah, I don't know exactly what was done, but it raises this perennial issue, which is that science fiction movies, they uh, they seem real to everyone except the scientists, right, who can't suspend their disbelief. <laughs> because, I mean, huge amounts of money are spent to make them seem real, quote in quotes, uh, but oftentimes the details aren't right. So the scientists are still shifting in their chairs in the dark where everyone else has completely been able to engage. And the question is, should it actually matter, little details, or should it not matter? I'm in the case of it 
mostly not mattering in a film like this. What I think matters from the perspective of of science is that people get to think that science is cool and have scientist heroes and have plots that have a lot of space things in them. And I think that it's a big win on that. Yeah, and I, th- I think one of the challenges of making these kinds of movies is that oftentimes, you know, you have to make these decisions. But I, al- I also think that it can sometimes be a cop out. I mean, I don't, you know, there, yes, obviously, if it's physically impossible to create hair that floats in <laughs> they, you know, gravity, like I, I get that. Static, um, electricity. But, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the other choices that um, movies make to me, you know, don't seem to be so important to the story and sacrifice science unnecessarily. Um, and with just a little bit more thought and a little bit more research, you know, you could become much more scientifically accurate. And, and so to me, that's pretty important because in the end, you know, you want people to come away with an accurate vision of what you know this what we do in these stories is we imagine what would happen if this situation were true um, and the more accurately you can represent what would actually happen for me the better the story and the more relevant it is to our lives well i think that on this one they did have a I know that they did have a science advisor and I'm forgetting his name right now, but I read a little bit about that. And in general, the trend is towards having science advisors work closely with Hollywood. The National Academy of Sciences has pioneered this relationship and it seems to be working. There used to be films where there were just complete bonehead errors and maybe there's still some, but I, I, the film Red Planet, there's actually a geneticist in that film and he gets the DNA base pairs wrong. He says, you know, A, G, T and P. <laughs> In actually in the movie, so like that one, a that one a grad student could have caught, but um, this is not on that scale. I think probably the science advisor said to them that's not accurate, and they decided well. And there's other things people have raised questions about that we won't discuss because they might get into spoiler mode. But I, I think probably the science advisor said, yeah, that's not accurate, but we, you know, obviously you need it for the story, and story wins. This is entertainment. It's probably a good working relationship, I would think. Yeah. And, and my, one of my favorite um, gaffes is an, a Law and Order episode where, you know, the, the uh, I think it's a psychiatrist who refers to the amygdala Ooh. <laughs> instead of the amygdala. That's and the I thing mean, that, that makes me want to fight. <laughs> it made me laugh so hard. <laughs> Queen amygdala of the Naboo. Exactly, exactly. So, but, you know, getting getting back to Earth and the seriousness of this week, it's been a really big week for science, of course. We have the announcements of the Nobel Prizes, um, which, you know, is exciting for a lot of people and a lot of labs and, and the universities, of course, that benefit. Uh, but it's also disappointing for people who are passed over. And it's controversial for people who really believe that science funding uh, should go to a, a lot of different people rather than the select few. Mm-hmm. And then in the Nobels, we should just say the reason this is controversial is, am I getting this right, Andre? They can only give the prize to three people in each category. And oftentimes, but they're trying to figure out when they decide what they're going to award, they're trying to figure out some sort of theme where something big happened that advanced science. And usually a lot of people were involved in whatever that theme is. That's right. So they limit it to three people. They don't give awards posthumously, which, um, you know, upsets a lot of people as well. Yep. And uh, and so, uh, you know, it's difficult for the committee to choose the three people that represent a particular concept, especially nowadays when science is becoming so subspecialized. And it certainly is a team effort uh, the vast majority of the time. So and in, in particular, so this this 
this week we heard obviously physics, chemistry, and um, physiology or medicine. And I would say the most controversial one is the physics prize uh, because it went to you know Peter Higgs, uh, who's who's the namesake of the Higgs boson or the God particles. It's uh, sometimes you're not called. supposed to call it the God particle. People get very upset. <laughs> no, but okay, do. yes, go ahead. <laughs> um, and Francois Engler, uh, and a third, a man by the name of Robert Brout, who has since passed away. But there were uh, three other scientists who published a very similar theory uh, just a month later. And uh, these are Carl Hagen of the University of Rochester, Tom Kibble of Imperial College, and Gerald Goralnik of Brown. And, you know, a lot of people uh, feel that they should have won as well, but there's a limit. You can only have three. And, and of course, uh, Higgs and Englert won it. Yeah, but they also so, should have given the the third slot to CERN, you know, which is the, found the <laughs> well, particle. Well, that's the other issue, right? Yeah. So, you know, these are the people who suggested that this particle exists, um, but they are not the people who discovered it in the end. And, you know, the, the, that's a controversy. What's more important, um, the theory that this is something that is worth searching for or the actual discovery? Uh, and I think a lot of people who talk about innovation and creativity would argue that, you know, the second one is just as important, if not more important. Right. And so there's friction between the theoretical physicists and the actual research physicists. And this this prize really brings out the tension as never before, because to do the high level uh, experiments that we're now doing, you need so many people and so much money. And it's not like, I mean, crediting only a couple people, even from that crew would be would be wrong too, right? I mean, it's a gigantic multi-nation, you know, tons of scientists uh, build the collider and, and make this happen. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the numbers that people throw around is 10,000 scientists are involved, right? So all of a sudden, if you have 10,000 Nobel Prize winners, are you sort of, you know, making the prize less prestigious because now you're sharing it with all these different people? You have so many laureates. And I think that's sort of the argument that the Nobel Committee would would suggest. Um, it's so weird but, because know, the Nobel Prize, when it went to climate science in 2007, it went to Al Gore. But this was the Peace Prize, unless I'm extremely mistaken, and they have different rules, I guess. It went to Al Gore in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has like a thousand scientists. So they didn't have any problem there. That's right. The yeah. Peace Prize yeah, actually Peace Prize does do not have this yeah. this limit. Yeah. Um, and, and that is one of the so, you know sources of controversy is why can't the Science Prize be like the Peace Prize? Um, and, you know, I think it's a it's a fair question to raise. Um, and, you know, but but there's also this question of, you know, are any of these prizes going to continue to be uh, have such an impact as science becomes more and more a, a group effort? Um you know, on on the other hand, it does provide a forum for people to talk about science. All of a sudden, science is on the front page of every single newspaper. Yep. Everybody hears about it this week, which is why we're talking about it too. NPR, you know, you get your science this week. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's great about the Nobel is that in this case, uh, and which is more you know often the case, basic science took the prize. So it wasn't necessarily that, you know, there was a cure for cancer that was that was very obviously applicable to our lives, but rather, you know, here's some pretty esoteric basic science in, in, you know, chemistry. It was a computational model of chemical reactions. Um, you know, in physics, it was this theory of, of the Higgs boson and in, um, physiology and medicine, it was these, these secretory pathways or the ways in which, uh, cells can secrete proteins. Um, so not obvious applications. And so by celebrating basic science, 
you know, the Nobel is, is giving a green light towards that kind of funding. And this transitions toward your interview. So we'll go there in a second. But just tell us, what does the medicine stuff mean? Um, proteins going in and out of cells? I mean, I'm sure that that uh, has all kinds of implications, but people immediately think medical, medical, medical. Uh, they're, they're right in this instance? Absolutely. I mean, certainly there are medical applications. And, you know, one example is, um, you know, how cells communicate with each other. So in, in my case, that what my, my pet topic is neuroscience. So um, Thomas Sudoff won the Nobel Prize for his, his um, f- for finding essentially uh, the molecule that allows uh, neurons to send neurotransmitters into the synapse, uh, which is the gap between two neurons, and thereby uh, facilitate the communication between cells. Um, so, you know, and, and whereas Randy Schechman's research was really about looking at the genes or the mutations that are involved in allowing a cell to have this uh, accurate secretory pathway that that takes the various molecules that the cells created, the proteins, and ships them out of the cell. Uh, and then finally, um, Rothman, he took apart a, a mammalian cell, essentially, like you know, as if you, you, know, if you were trying, want to figure out how, to, how a watch works, you can take apart the parts and see how each part fits into the pathway. And that's essentially what he did with a mammalian cell, also with respect to this uh, a transport of proteins outside of the cell. So, you know, this, hopefully this kind, understanding this mechanism is a way in which we can then apply, um, use, use dr- the drug discovery techniques to, and, and figure out how to fix mutations that can cause uh, debilitating diseases like Alzheimer's disease or hepatitis or, or other such diseases in which this is a potentially a problem. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back with my interview with Randy Sheckman. Uh, and Chris, I need to warn you that, you know, it's a very busy week for him, so his uh-huh. phone was ringing off the hook. Um, I would say every couple minutes, uh, he had to uh, pick it up and put it down, but uh, uh-huh. I was delighted that he continued to <laughs> focus on the interview. It uh, adds some of- realism to the interview. It's very Absolutely. It's a, it's a big week for him. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Randy Sheckman. Hi, how are you? Very well, and we are delighted that you have taken some time out of what is probably a very busy week for you, having just won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Yes, indeed. It's been nonstop. So I just want to jump right in and ask you, how did you find out? Well, so, uh, of course, there's a tradition of being called. Uh, uh, And uh, they call um, just before they have a press conference in Stockholm. Uh, The conference is at 1130 Central European time which translates to uh, 2.30 California time. But then, of course, they call earlier, and uh, on this occasion they called at 1.15 in the morning. Um, I had just returned from Germany the night before uh, at 8 o'clock, and uh, I was so tired I, I, I crashed and fell asleep at 9 o'clock, which was a good thing because I had at least four hours sleep uh, before the call. I, in fact, I was so uh, I was so completely out of it that uh, I don't think I heard the phone ring, but my wife did. And she, uh, she yelled out something like, this is it, this is it. And then I heard the phone ring. And uh, so I stumbled out of bed and uh, in the dark, I didn't see what time it was. I, uh, trembling, I picked up the phone and uh, fortunately was reassured by a nice uh, Swedish accented gentleman on the other side. And uh, then I, uh, I knew what was up, and uh, I, I think I uttered something like, oh, my God, twice. And uh, he uh, congratulated me and assured me that it wasn't a, uh, a crank call. So, what, what, but, you know, wouldn't a crank caller make the same assurance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
Of course, that has occurred to me as well. But, uh, but in this case, in this case um, I happen to know the guy. He's the chairman of the Medicine Physiology Committee. I served on, a, on another committee with him. So uh, I, did, I did recall his, his voice. And then he reminded me that we had served on this committee before. And that, a, a crank caller would not know that. <laughs> That's very good. So how did your wife know? Why would she say this is it? Well, because uh, for many years now, people have been telling me around this time of year that, you know, this is my year. Uh, this begins, the drumbeat begins if you win this uh, award called the Lasker Prize, which is a major, the, maybe the, bio, the, the major biomedical prize in the U.S. Uh, there is a good fraction of uh, Lasker basic science winners who go on to win the Nobel Prize, though, of course, it's, there's no assurance. And um, nonetheless, when you win it, then... Um, and everybody just, you know, it's sort of nonstop. And, and indeed, um, in Germany, where I was just before, I won some other award. And the person who introduced me the previous week said, uh, so many of X of number of this particular award winners go on to win the Nobel. And, well, we'll see what happens on Monday. So, <laughs> but I, I, I've gotten so used to it that I don't, I don't pay much, too much attention to it. But nonetheless, of course, my wife and I are always aware of the, of the day that announcement will be. So um, uh, usually it just goes by without uh, any noise in the middle of the night. And, and uh, in, in recent years, I've, I've come to call the following day, that Monday, Groundhog Day, uh, just like the, the Bill Murray movie. And um, um, fortunately, in the case of that uh, Groundhog Day movie, uh, there's a happy ending. And that, that was uh, my happy ending was on Monday. Well, our warmest congratulations to you. We're delighted uh, that you did get, in fact, the call. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the research that you did, of course, that landed you this prize. What do you think was the most important discovery that you made uh, that put you on their radar? I think it was a discovery that, that uh, my graduate student, Peter Novick, and I made very early on uh, of uh, mutations that block the process of secretion in baker's yeast. Uh, this, this was, um, we started in 1976 with the idea that a lowly organism, yeast, baker's yeast, which has been used by geneticists and molecular biologists to study essential processes that are shared among cells that have a nucleus, cells called eukaryotes. Uh, we started with the premise that yeast cells would also uh, use a, um, a eukaryotic-like mechanism for protein secretion. Uh, this hadn't been done before, and uh, we, we had a particular hypothesis, Peter Novick and I, about what kinds of mutations in the yeast genome would cripple the process of protein secretion. And um, uh, Novick, who was quite a brilliant graduate student, uh, very, very quickly, within a year, managed to find uh, the first such mutation. And we published uh, in 1979, after I'd been here for three years, we published a what was probably a very important paper, certainly I felt so at the time, in the journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, describing this first mutant and its uh, behavior and how it affects the ability of a yeast cell to grow and divide. And uh, we then went on and were able to uh, uh, find many more such mutations in many different genes that populate a, a pathway uh, of secretion. And uh, I think that really opened up a whole new field and certainly gave me enough for the rest of my life to study. And um, um, I think it was that that was credited. Indeed, if you look at the citation in the essay that accompanies the award, they, 
the committee has focused on that very original, uh, very er early work. And so what makes yeast a good model for, I'm assuming that eventually we'd like to apply this information to human cells and help cure diseases. So, so what makes yeast a good model for, for the human cell? It's very convenient to work with in a laboratory. It grows rapidly. They double every hour and a half. They grow on simple salts and sugars as a nutrient. The cells are identical to one another. So it's a clone, really, uh, of cells. And uh, the, uh, the most uh, salient feature is that uh, the yeast genome has just one copy of each gene. Unlike our genome, the human genome, which has two copies of each gene. So, so the advantage of that, it's called haploid. We're, we're diploid, and yeast cells have a phase of their life cycle that's haploid. And the advantage of that, technically, is that when you expose a yeast culture to a chemical that causes mutations, uh, if the mutation is in a, an essential gene, uh, the cell displays the defect right away. But imagine if you expose a, a human diploid cell to a chemical mut a mutagen uh, and you hit that same gene, you'd have to hit that gene just by chance twice in exactly the same way in order to cripple the cell. So, so, so it's very much more convenient to study yeast cells because of that haploid lifestyle. And therefore, um, it, uh, doing genetics with yeast is a piece of cake compared to doing genetics mammalian, with mammalians, at least in, in 1976 when we started. Now, the technology has advanced considerably since then, and it's now almost as easy to do this with mammalian cells growing in culture, but it's still not quite as easy. So I'm not sure that you wanted to hear all that. But uh, anyway, that's why yeast has been a favorite organism for, for many decades by um, geneticists, molecular biologists, and now cell biologists. No, that's great. And, uh, you know, in fact, I'd like to even ponder that a little bit further and ask, so if, if we then, if we're using the yeast as a model for a human cell, um, can we actually create, can we in, in put genes, human genes into the cell, say, for example, I know that one of your interests is Alzheimer's disease. And of course, there's a familial component to it. So if we knew, you know, that kind of genetic underpinning, could we put it into a yeast cell and then figure out a way to solve the problem? Well, um, the, some people have done that successfully. But, uh, but uh, realize this, there's a billion years of evolution that separates yeast and humans, or, you know, at least a billion, maybe more, probably more. Uh, and therefore, uh, although the pathways and processes are highly conserved, uh, the exact pieces of the puzzle are not, ex are not precise, usually. So ima imagine you took um, uh, a picture and you divided it up uh, into, into a puzzle uh, two different ways. The, the, the picture would be the same, but the pieces would have different shapes. And so interchanging the pieces between two puzzles that are cut differently is, is not so easy. Once in a while, it actually works. And the most dramatic example of that was the Nobel Prize for um, Medicine Physiology was given, oh, some maybe 10 years ago, to a team, uh, two investigators by the name of Hartwell and Nurse. And what Paul Nurse did in Britain was a remarkable experiment where he took mutations that block the ability of a yeast cell to divide, a different pathway than what we've studied. And he found a key, a really key so-called regulatory gene. Um, and he found that there's an equivalent gene in the human genome. And he was able to take the human gene 
and put that back into a yeast cell and replace the crippled mutant yeast gene with the human gene equivalent. And uh, that was spectacular. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work very often, but in that case, it worked. So nonetheless, what you, the strategy that you've indicated is one that people use. Um, and one that I can tell you is, has been exploited widely by the biotechnology industry to use yeast as a vehicle for the manufacture of useful um, biopharmaceutical products. And a couple that I had a hand in helping advise a company on are um, the one, if you take the hepatitis virus and you take a key protein, a key gene of the hepatitis virus, and you uh, put that gene into yeast, yeast cell will manufacture this protein in little particles that use the same kind of a, a parts of this, this uh, pathway, the secretory pathway that we work on, to assemble these so-called virus-like particles. These particles um, look like virus, but they have no infectious material. And so if you isolate them from a yeast cell that has this hepatitis gene, uh, they make a wonderful uh, immunogen or vaccination against hepatitis, uh, hepatitis B. So you can, in fact, express a protein and have it function, at least in that case. And another example is human insulin. If you take the gene for human insulin and you um, engineer it to be uh, produced in yeast, uh, insulin is a protein, one of many examples of proteins that have to be shipped out of the cell by secretion. And uh, again, the same biotech company was able to... Uh, engineer the uh, production of very large quantities of human insulin by secretion in yeast. And that now is one third of the world's supply of, uh, of uh, insulin for treatment of diabetics. So that in spite of the more than a billion years of separation, the pathways as they're executed are, are, are fundamentally the same. And so if you provide a new passenger, uh, the same pathway can be used to export that passenger. Right. So for the non-scientists and of amongst our listeners, just I wanted to get a better understanding of what brings the three of you who are sharing this prize together. Um, so if we say, for example, um, that your contribution was towards the genetic or the secretory pathways, um, what would be the contributions of the other two winners? Well, they're very, they're very complementary. Um, uh, Jim Rothman and I are rough com contemporaries, and he started at Stanford I mean, a year or two after I did with a, with a, a complementary approach, uh, another very powerful approach, which was to uh, take mammalian cells, and instead of uh, looking at intact cells, he, he broke them open, and he devised uh, a way of manipulating uh, membranes and soluble proteins isolated from these cells to uh, recapitulate uh, key events in the passage of secretory proteins from one station to the next in a kind of a conveyor belt-like pathway that, that, that defines this process. So um, whereas I was isolating mutations and cloning genes relevant to this pathway, he was assaying the process by uh, mixing and matching proteins and membranes, uh, and it was able to purify proteins based on his functional assay. And uh, a key moment came in the mid to late 1980s when he isolated one of the proteins that he discovered and found on sequencing the protein that it, the gene that encodes this protein in the human genome is equivalent to one of the genes that we had discovered years earlier uh, uh, through mutations. And so that, uh, that kind of golden spike moment uh, 
allowed us to conclude that we were studying the same pathway, the same process. So that was very reassuring. We knew we were both on the right track. And uh, so we, we've been kind of, you know, collaborators, competitors ever since then. Thomas Sudhoff, working quite independently on the nerve cell, uh, was able to study how, the, uh, how little vesicles, which are the means uh, by which secretory molecules are conveyed, he studied how these little vesicles lodge at the nerve ending and uh, specifically how their release of neurotransmitters by a process called membrane fusion at the nerve terminal can be regulated by uh, uh, an ion called calcium. And see, he identified a key regulatory molecule at the nerve terminal that is a kind of a sensor of calcium. And when calcium is present, it causes the uh, um, little vesicles that carry uh, neurotransmitters to fuse with the nerve membrane and thus discharge neurotransmitters into the space between two nerve cells, the space called the synapse. So his, his key contribution was in discovering that regulatory molecule, which is so crucial for all, uh, all nerve transmission. So what struck me about um, this combination of the three of you is that, you know, in general, we're kind of used to there being one major discovery and a team of people are credited. Um, but in this case, it almost seems as though it's sort of an idea of, you know, how do, how do these different molecules get transported around and in and out of the cell? Um, and so I, I, I'm having trouble understanding, you know, what would make these three contributions come together um, as opposed to, you know, there, there are probably a lot of other important contributions. Well, this is a problem. You know, in fact, every year this is a problem. Uh, this, this is the, the, the Nobel Committee sits around and tries to parse this out and decide what exactly. I think they, they're, they're, what they strive for is to, is to focus on a concept. Uh, you know, a key, a key discovery, and then attribute that to the people who made the, re the relevant uh, uh, observations. Um, and I understand it's a problem, and, and in this case, I could cite a half a dozen other people around the world who made very important, probably key, discoveries that impinge on the same uh, conclusions that uh, Rothman, Sudhoff, and I made, but which the, the Nobel Committee decided weren't as central. And uh, that, uh, of course, is the cause of some, much anguish. Sure. I, but I, I would think this year there's an even greater controversy with the physics prize. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that. Um, you know, uh, uh, every year. Every, I, I, won't, I won't cite examples, but I can tell you every year there's a debate. Uh, and I think for probably most of the prizes. You know, who deserved the credit? Who's been left out? And it all has to do with, you know, this ridiculous limitation to three people. And, and the enormous, uh, the, I mean, frankly, the enormous influence that uh, the Nobel has taken. There are many other prizes uh, in, in biomedical science, some, some of which are, are, are even more lucrative than the Nobel Prize. Uh, and yet uh, the Nobel has, has, is so uh, sort of uh, central that, you know, everyone focuses on that. And it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. 
So what do you hope the Nobel Prize will give you now that you've won it? Um, let's forget about the money and think about the, you know, what, what would you do? Because I think one of the goals of the Nobel Prize is to really shine a spotlight on science and show how science can, you know, improve, improve humanity. So what do you hope your... Yeah, okay. I don't think it's, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think it's going to do anything specifically for me. Uh, I have the respect uh, of my colleagues here. I, I have... Uh, outstanding research support from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. That's not in, in at risk. Uh, I'm, I'm a happy person. Uh, but what, what it, what I think what it will do for me is it'll give me a, uh, if you will, a spotlight, um, to highlight what I think are some of the crucial things, a, in, in biomedical science funding, for instance, of basic biomedical science and B even more importantly, in my mind, uh, it will allow me to, to use whatever influence uh, I have to help support public higher education, which I think is really in peril all over the country. So I, I feel very passionate about, for example, the University of California. I was an undergraduate at UCLA, and although I was a graduate student at Stanford, I was then a postdoctoral fellow at UCSD, and I've been at Berkeley for 37 years, and I've come to realize how, how uh, crucial to my life Having that access to public higher education has been for what I've done. I, I came from a middle-class family. There was no prospect, five kids, no prospect of any of us going to a private university. Never occurred to me to think about a place like Stanford or Caltech. But there was UCLA. It was a great school. It uh, offered everything that I could possibly want at $40 uh, in fees a term, $400 a, a term for room and board, and I could work a summer job and pay myself for the, for the whole school year. Uh, indeed, my father never had to pay uh, virtually anything to educate his kids. And that, that simply isn't possible now. And it's, uh, it's just tragic that this has happened. And it's not just in California. It's in every state that's offered public higher education. Uh, I, it, we've gone away from, from that principle. And uh, to the extent that I have any influence, I want to try to find our claw our way back. Well, I do think that's a really Nobel cause, um, but I should also disclose that my own PhD is from UCLA, uh, and I uh -huh. did a postdoc at UCSF, so I also uh -huh. am, a, am a firm believer in public education. Um, and of course, the UC system is, has been under a lot of fire recently in the past 10 years because tuition has steadily increased to the point where you know it is almost unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, so I agree with you that we need to sort of try to get people to think more carefully about, um, the investment that a public education can make in our country. Yeah, we agree. That's great. So I have, if I have, you know, a little more influence, uh, this week than I had last week, I, I intend to use that. Great. Well, I look forward to, uh, hearing you advocate for public education. Um, so what else do you think that people need to know about basic research and how it should be um, celebrated as opposed to always looking for the application, uh, uh, you know, towards human uh, medicine and, and so forth? Well, I mean, look at, the, look at this week's Nobel Prizes in, in all three disciplines thus far. It's all basic science. And, uh, the, the, I mean, the virtue of, uh, of the Nobel is... Uh, more often than not, it celebrates basic science. Uh, and in each case, uh, I use my own example as I did, in, in each case, you can see that basic science can be translated. And uh, my feeling is that it should be translated by private concerns and not by universities. 
the university should focus on, on basic un, undirected research where, where investigators make hypotheses and uh, they do experiments to test how living processes work. That, that's what I think should happen, at least in research at, at, at the university and at research institutes. And, and uh, commercial concerns should then apply that knowledge. There should be a, a way of transferring that knowledge from one to the other, perhaps through patents, uh, other means. Uh, but but to uh, but to force the university uh, into into a um, uh, more private uh, profit oriented uh, direction, I think is uh, is a fundamental mistake. Uh, you know, we don't run that way. I mean, uh, my laboratory runs with a group of people, and we interact and. Um, we form collaborations, but we don't operate as a huge team like like uh, like you see in a big company. And you need that kind of huge team to make to to do the research for a, for a product. I think the the idea that um, that uh, the NIH should be funding drug discovery is uh, is a mistake. I think I think um, drug discovery should be done at biotech and at pharmaceutical companies. And so what I argue is that. Um, the NIH has gone away from its original mission of investigator-initiated funding uh, for exploratory science. Uh, time and again, we see how that exploratory science yields profits in private industry, and uh, there, there should be that division of labor. There's also a second problem that we're seeing in science, and that is that there are a lot of people who are graduating with PhDs and going on to do postdocs, but there aren't a lot of faculty positions available for them. And so this is becoming a real problem. Where do we put these people who want to do science, but there just aren't jobs for them within academia? Um, what do you think are some potential solutions to that issue? Well, um, lots changed since I was a graduate student uh, in the 1970s. Uh, there were no other no other options other than being an academic. Uh, I, 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 I wanted to be an academic, so that wasn't a problem. But nowadays, there are many other options. And um, most of my postdocs want to go into biotech. In fact, there are still a lot of opportunities in biotechnology. Uh, the unemployment rate among PhDs in biotechnology is very low. Um, and, the, you know, frankly, the lifestyle is different and, and may appeal more to, uh, to young investigators who, who still enjoy doing, doing science, doing their own science. When you become an academic, it's rare that the academic can continue to work in the laboratory, him or herself. They have to engage in other responsibilities and have to give up the pleasure of doing their own science. Whereas in biotech, if, if you really enjoy working at the bench and you're good at it, you probably have a much longer shelf life than you do as an academic. So, uh, and the lifestyle is different and you, you, may, if you, you may not have to work uh, for, you know, may not have to write grants and... Uh, this kind of thing. So um, anyway, m many of my postdocs now prefer prefer that lifestyle, and uh, they've been successful in getting jobs. So that's a that's a prominent option that wasn't available when I was a student. There are other options: journalism, uh, law, patent law, uh, scientific advocacy, working in, through legislatures. There are many options that simply were were not around. Um, and so I, I agree. Um, we're training an awful lot of people. Maybe we should train fewer people. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there's still a, 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 good, a big need to have highly skilled scientific labor force. So I'm not sure it's such a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a scientific education is useful in so many different disciplines. And also, it's incredibly important for our society. Um, 
But there's also been a trend towards um, looking at some of these major prizes, you know, the Lasker Prize or the Nobel Prize. And there have been a couple of privately funded prizes that, as you mentioned earlier, do even have a bigger um, sort of price tag on them that actually give give more money. Uh, but these prizes are going to established researchers and usually, um, you know, one or two people as opposed to sort of spreading the money around and having, you know, creating more faculty positions. And I, I wondered what your opinion was on that, given that now you're on the other side of these prizes. Well, I agree. I mean, it, it, it is, it does seem to be you know, being taken to an extreme and um, perhaps you're referring to this prize that was started this year where 11 people were anointed with $3 million each. Yes. It, it sounds like a lot. Um, it is a lot. But if you were to take that money and spread it out among universities, it wouldn't go that far, really. So, uh, so I look to the private agencies uh, that fund, that support, for instance, uh, young investigators early in their career. And there are many such organizations, Searle, uh, Pew, uh, McKnight, many such agencies that uh, I think do a good job spreading the money around for young investigators, and uh, and and perhaps uh, some of these prizes that are so splashy might be better better used in that way. Well, we won't take up any more of your time. Thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds and and sharing us your experience with us. Uh, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know just before we sign off? Well, I'll just I'll just add then again to my passion about public higher education. Uh, I think it's unlikely that we'll ever return to uh, a University of California that had as, as much support as there was when I was an undergraduate beginning in 1966. So what, uh, what the people of California have to appreciate is that if they, if they value this institution, they're going to have to, people, certainly people of means, are going to have to recognize that it's no longer a fully publicly supported institution. And we have to, we have to do a better job raising money privately to sustain scholarships for middle-class families and for PhD students. Uh, uh, Stanford does a, a wonderful job raising money for their programs, but when they call me every year to ask for a donation, I remind them that I've been a faculty member at UC Berkeley and that every dollar, extra dollar of mine is going to go to public higher education. Well, that's great. And I, I'm sure having another Nobel Prize winner on their faculty will help the efforts of UC Berkeley to raise money. So thank you very much for all of that you've done, uh, both for science and uh, for public education. We look forward to watching your career develop. Thank you very much, Indri. So, Indre, I want to just add a couple facts that amplify his point about California and higher education. It turns out that one of the Climatist partners, Mother Jones, uh, did a report on this last year, and I'm going to just quote some things I was stunned by. Uh, so, it's cheaper, this is a quote, for a middle-class student to attend Harvard, which is about 17000 for tuition, room, and board, with financial aid. Then do attend Cal State East Bay, a mid-tier school that will run uh, the same person, same middle-class student, 24000 a year. Okay, so That's amazing. Yeah, and here's another one, uh, another quote. In 1980, 15% of California state budget went to higher ed. That is down by 2001 to 9%. 2011, I think you mean. Sorry, 2011, 9%, 9%. So you can see it in the, in the California budget that these changes have occurred. Obviously, as, student, as these changes occur, students accumulate uh, more debt. So yeah. uh, this, is, this is really making it difficult to spend a lot of time dedicated to your education if you're in one of these financial brackets. 
Absolutely. And one of the most affordable schools in San Francisco, for example, City College, is in is in danger of getting its accreditation stripped and completely not being available, hmm. um, which which would really harm a lot of people who have to work and go to school, because that's one of the things that City College really provides is a flexible schedule. So I'm I'm glad that he's using his platform. He's going to use his platform for this. And I guess I'll also say to draw attention to this, I guess I'll also say it's uh seems to me like potentially a wise tactical choice. I mean, it's not world peace, you know. It's something that he can speak very relevantly to uh, right in his backyard uh, at Berkeley, you know. So I think it's actually, you know, you can actually probably have some real influence there. Yeah, I was I, I was surprised and delighted um, by, you know, it, it sort of, for me, it... it uh, I found him to be a, a very sort of humble and modest man for someone who had just won, you know, these major prizes. And uh, the fact that he would use it for such a good cause, I, I felt was uh, really, you know, right in the spirit of a Nobel Prize, in my opinion. So, so bravo. Um, bravo to Randy Sheckman and uh, bravo to science for a good week. And so that's the end of our episode. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac and sponsored by Climate Desk, which is a media consortium of publications covering climate change, sharing content, pooling resources. They include Slate, The Guardian, Wired, The Atlantic, Grist, Mother Jones, and the Center for Investigative Reporting. Our music is by the award-winning New Zealand producer, Rian Sheehan. I'm your host, Chris Mooney. And I'm also your host, Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.